Let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 26 in your Bibles this evening. Genesis chapter 26. One of the reasons that I love sports so much is because I never know who's going to win on a given at a given event. The teams always have to play the game. A team can have a lot of great superstars and maybe have a great record and be favored to win, but if you follow sports at all, you know that there are no guarantees, that even the best teams can lose. And so it's not enough for a team to be talented or to know how to defeat the opponent. They have to actually get out on the playing surface and do it. And similarly, the Christian life is very simple on paper. It makes a lot of sense. God is the creator. God is the ruler. God loves His people and wants to pour out spiritual blessing on them. God wants to shape them into the image of Jesus Christ and all that He asks of us. Okay, This is kind of the X's and O's of it. We simply just need to obey and trust Him in faith. We search the Scriptures, meditate on them. We obey Him. And so we know how to do all those things. We know what we're supposed to do often. But when it comes down to getting on the playing surface, so to speak, of the Christian life, we never know what's going to happen. It sometimes is much harder than we expected. And, and uh, on paper, it may seem easy to, to live the Christian life. When it comes to actually doing it, it's difficult, isn't it? And uh, it requires more dependence on God. And sometimes we create for ourselves a greater, a bigger web of problems when we fail to live in obedient faith. Now, God is gracious and He uses even our failures to help strengthen us and to use that for greater service down the road. But, but often what we do with, is when we fail to obey Him and fail to trust in Him, we create ourselves greater problems, create for ourselves greater problems. This passage that we're going to look at here in chapter 26 is falls between two primary characters in the book of Genesis. One of the main characters that we've looked at so far is a man by the name of Abraham. And the, the next main character that we're going to look at is a man by the name of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And so Isaac uh, here, this, this chapter particularly, helps bridge the gap between Abraham, this great man of faith, and Jacob, this other great man whom God uses. And, uh, and so this will help lay the groundwork that this blessing that was promised to Abraham is going to be passed down to Jacob through Isaac. And that's what this passage does. So let me begin reading verses 1 through 6, and uh, we'll read each section as we go through. Verse 1 reads, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham, so Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. 
Tonight we're going to see that those who live in obedient faith receive God's blessings and triumph over worldly antagonism. Those who live in obedient faith receive God's blessing and triumph over worldly antagonism. And the outline that I'm using tonight uh, is drawn from Alan Ross's commentary on Genesis. I think it's a a very good commentary and, and I found it to be the best outline uh, for this passage. So the first thing we see in verses 1-6 through six is that God's blessings come to those who obey. Verses 1-6. through six, God's blessings come to those who obey. In verses 1-3, through three, God commands Isaac to do something. The circumstances here are very similar to what we saw with Abraham in chapter 12. When there was a famine in the land, God said, Go down to Egypt. I want you to stay there. Isaac here is told not to go quite that far, all the way down to Egypt, but to Gerar, which is between uh, Israel and Egypt. It's actually on the Mediterranean coast, just off the the southwest corner of um, Israel. And um, so he didn't go all the way to Egypt, perhaps because God wanted him to stay close to the land of promise so that he wouldn't be... Uh, tempted to leave that land and go and, and enjoy all the pleasures that there are in Egypt. Uh, but, but the text doesn't really say, so, so all that we can know is that God commanded him to go to Gerar. He demands obedience from Isaac. And this setting will provide, uh, th- this location will provide the setting for the first part of the story where Isaac is fearful for his life. And we'll see that here in the following verses beginning with verse 7. Okay, so God demands obedience. Verses 3 through 6 show us that, God, that obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. Here, God reminds Isaac of all the blessings that were promised to his father, Abraham. And he says, The reason that you are being blessed right now is actually because your father was obeying me. He was obeying all my... Look at the end of verse 5. He obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. There's not a more comprehensive way that you could say that Abraham obeyed God than what God says there in verse 5. And so what he tells to Isaac is that you, Isaac, and all of your descendants will be blessed as a result of your father's obedience. And I will multiply your descendants. And because I've remembered my covenant with Abraham, you are going to be blessed specifically. You and your descendants. Obedience brings blessing. He wanted to remind Isaac that this blessing that he had heard about, that his father was supposed to receive, was being passed down to him and to future generations. That he should not fear. That he should should not be... Uh, worried about what the future may bring because God was on his side. And these blessings were going to come to him and his descendants. And the basis for God's promise is his, is his own goodness. That the, I have shown my special love, my special favor to this man Abraham. Not because he was special on his own. He was nothing when I called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, but, but uh, because I chose him. And he decided to trust me. So God's blessing comes to those who obey. Secondly, we see in verses 7 through 11 that God's blessings should produce faith, but they often do not. God's blessings should produce faith, or we can say greater faith, but they often do not. Look at verse 7. I actually didn't read verse 6. Let me read verse 6. So Isaac lived in Gerar. 
according to what God had told him. Verse 7, When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, My wife, thinking the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches the man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Instead of God's blessing on Isaac, as we saw in verses 3-5, through this promised blessing, instead of it producing in him greater faith, it produces uh, fear in him. Or at least that's how Isaac responds. And so the danger for us is when it comes to God blessing us, when God gives us some spiritual blessing or even physical blessing, um, we, we can endanger the, blessing, the greater blessings that God has for us when we lack faith. And this is what Isaac does here. We see that he, he is fearful for his life. Verse 7 at the end, it says that the men of this place might kill me on the account of Rebekah, so I will lie about my relationship with her. The last recorded time that, that Isaac's father used this deception was before Isaac was born. Before Isaac was even conceived, actually. You remember in chapter 20 that Abraham and Sarah endangered the blessing of God because prior to that, God had visited Abraham and Sarah and said, there is going to be a son through you. And about this time next year, I'm going to come back. The angel of the Lord said, I'm going to come back and you're going to have a son at that time. Well, between that time when they received that promise and uh, the time in which she gets pregnant, they go to Egypt. And, uh, and it's at that time that, that they run into a, another Abimelech. I think it's actually a different Abimelech. Uh, probably a different one because this is over 60 years later. Abimelech was probably the name of kind of the succession of, of leaders or kings, kind of like we call pharaohs of Egypt. There's multiple pharaohs or, um, or uh, Caesar of Rome, things like that. So this is probably a name that's just given to the leader of that, of that area. And so this Abimelech was, was ready to take Sarah into his harem and ready to have a physical, intimate relationship with her because Abraham had lied to them. And, uh, and uh, God protects them by coming to... God comes and talks to Abimelech, remember, in a dream and says, no, do not touch this woman. She is married. And Abimelech goes back to Abraham and says, what are you doing? Why did you tell me? Basically, the same sort of questions that this Abimelech asks Isaac. And what God was doing there was He was protecting the blessing that He had promised. You see... If Abraham or Sarah would have uh, have been impregnated by those men, then God's promises God's promise wouldn't have been fulfilled, and so God protected them from uh, from endangering their blessing. And this is the same thing that happened here. So, so where did Isaac get the idea from? I mean, uh, he wasn't born when when Abraham and Sarah last were last recorded to have done this 
this uh, deception or carried out this deception? Where did he get this idea? Turn back to chapter 20. And uh, let me just point you to one verse because we know that this happened also in chapter 12 as well. At the end of chapter 12, the same sort of thing happened. They, they made up this, this uh, lie and, and told, told the kings there in order to protect Abraham's life. Chapter 20, verse 13. Now let's start with verse 12. It says, uh, Abraham's talking to Abimelech and he says, Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Verse 13, And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. So this this record here in chapter 20 could have been the last time that they carried out this deception. But based on the way that Abraham talked to Sarah at the beginning of their their calling, really, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the, 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 the plan was, whenever we go to a place that is unknown, where, where there's a possibility that I would be killed, just say that you're my sister. And apparently she agrees to that. So what could have been happening, turn back to chapter 26, is that even following chapter 20, following the birth of Isaac, that this was continually going on, that every time they went out of town, whenever they went to an, uh, an, uh, an unknown place, that they carried out this deception among the people. And perhaps Isaac saw that and saw, hey, it works. God is still protecting them. And uh, with Abraham, the the, uh, the story this does not justify it, but I'm just trying to show you how bad what Isaac is doing. With Abraham, she actually was his half sister, right? They had the same father, but uh, or the same mother, I think it is. But but not with Isaac. They were not sisters in any brother sister in any way. And so this is a bold faced lie in order to protect himself. Notice the reason why he thinks he needs to protect himself at the end of verse seven. The men of this place might kill me. Verse nine. Uh, at the end of the verse, it says, "Because I said I might die on account of her." And so, although blessing should engender in us greater faith, sometimes when we act and when we lack faith, we actually endanger. God's blessing. And I think that's what Isaac is doing here. He's endangering the future blessing of God. But the great part about our God is that He is not bound by our foolishness. He's not required to treat us as our sins deserve. That's what the psalmist says. We love our God because He doesn't treat us that way. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. If He did, who could stand? So we see in verses 8-11 through 11 that God protects these Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, he protects them and their blessing. Like with his parents, Isaac is protected with his wife through a pagan king. Abimelech noticed their intimate relationship. Notice verse 8. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. The word there, caressing, is literally laughing. But I think the word in the Nazbi is a good translation, a good idea of what that word really means. That it's more than uh, a laughing that a, a sibling would do uh, with the that siblings would do with one another. This is a laughing or interacting in a playful way. 
so that Abimelech can simply see what's going on and recognize that these are not brothers. Brothers and sisters don't act this way. And uh, and so perhaps Abimelech, this king here, had heard about what had happened to his former predecessor, perhaps his father or grandfather, Abimelech, uh, who saw Abraham and Sarah do the same thing to him. Perhaps he had already known the story and saw... This sounds exactly like what happened to the other Abimelech with Abraham and Sarah. Whatever the case, uh, Abimelech notices what's going on and, and he actually protects them. Notice verse 11. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So Isaac could have endangered the blessing and caused other people to sin. And that's the thing about sin. That's the the, the really complex thing about sin, that it's not, it doesn't affect just you. When I sin, my sin doesn't just affect me. When you sin, it doesn't affect just you. It affects pe- people around you. In fact, you can lead other people into sin. This is what Isaac could have done if God didn't stop it. Um, Abimelech could have been uh, thinking she's a virgin. She's uh, she She doesn't have a spouse, so... It's okay for me to take her into a relationship, probably a marriage relationship like we talked about in chapter 20. And and he would have actually been sinning against God unknowingly. And and the point here is that, that our sins affect more than just us. Listen to the strong words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And so Christ talks about guarding ourselves and our our responses to God's God's command, God's demands for obedience. We gotta guard ourselves, make sure that we're not causing other people to sin. Because we in some sense take a responsibility. Sometimes the way we like to think about other people's sin is they're ultimately responsible for it. But if you recognize throughout this, if you look throughout the scripture, what you'll recognize is that often the sins of of children are attributed in some sense to the sins of their parents. That they have a responsibility for how they led them, what they emphasized, what they didn't emphasize. And I think the same thing is true even within a church setting. That the way that we act among other people, uh, and hopefully that it, it's um, hopefully that sort of thing is not uh, just happening among other people, but but we should be godly among other people. Otherwise, we can cause other people in the church even to sin because we um, either condone it or or maybe they see us get away with it and and think uh, maybe I could get away with it too. So we can endanger God's blessing by failing. To obey, failing to have faith in God. Number three, God's blessings continue despite envy from unbelievers. God's blessings continue despite envy from unbelievers, verses 12 through 22. Notice, despite Isaac's sin, God still blesses him, verse 12. Now, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy, for he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household. In verse 13, it says that he continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. Literally, that phrase there is, 
and the man became great, and he continually became greater until he became very great. And so Moses is emphasizing that God is blessing him in a supernatural way, that He's giving him such spectacular blessing. Now, this is not a guarantee, obviously, for all believers, that everybody's going to be physically blessed like Isaac was. Uh, but, but what we should see is that God certainly is able to do that. He has the power to, to bless whom He wants to bless, to prosper whom He wants to prosper. And so God still richly blesses His people despite their sin. But notice in verses, the second part of verse 14 through verse 22 that the world may envy that blessing. It says, so that the Philistines envied Him. Verse 15, Now all the wells which His father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham His father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same name which his fathers had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, the water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth. For he said, at last, the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. When we receive blessing as believers, sometimes the world envies it. Uh, we see the envy of the this the unbelievers there at the end of verse 14. It says that the Philistines envied him, and the result of their envy is this conflict that they this ongoing conflict in verses 15 to 22. They, what it happens, verse 15 tells us that they had all these wells that were dug by Abraham and his men are now being filled up, or at some point in the past had been filled up by the Philistines. Just fill them up with earth, and. Um, and uh, they didn't want people just wandering about in their land, what they, uh, what they would say was their land. And so there's this conflict over water. And so what Isaac would do is he'd go to the, each of these different places and he'd redig the holes, redig the, the wells. And God was continually prospering him. Wherever he would go, water would be there. And uh, this should say something to us in time of famine, in a time of great drought. There's, there's places of water that God provides for Isaac. He redigs the hole and then they say, no, this is our land. And so he moves on to another place. He digs the hole. They say, no, this is ours. And he finally moves to a place that he calls Rehoboth and says, finally, we have a place that, that we can prosper and, and be fruitful. So God's blessings continue despite envy from unbelievers. And then number four, obedient faith triumphs over worldly antagonism. Obedient faith triumphs over worldly antagonism. Verses 23 through 33. Then he went up from there, that is Isaac, to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzeth and Phicol, the commander of his army. 
Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. You will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged the oaths. And then Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Obedient faith triumphs over worldly antagonism. Although they, they sent initially, Abimelech sent Isaac away. Get out of here. We see that you're blessed to the Lord and we don't want to, uh, to be a part of that. We don't want to see that. We want to see blessing for ourselves. So you go away from here. Isaac leaves that place, digs these wells, is continually pushed on until he finds this Rehoboth. And then then after a period of time, Abimelech and his commander of his army and others come with him to to, to strike an oath between the two of them. And uh, and uh, we see in verses 23 through 25 that God is on on Isaac's side. He's reminded again. Isaac is reminded of God's continual blessing. In verse 24 it says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Don't fear. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants among you for the sake of my servant Abraham. And so in times of doubt, God reassures His people. He reminds them that that although things seem bleak, although things seem to be crushing in all around you, God is still faithful. And and so uh, Isaac is blessed by God. And sometimes God's presence is recognized by the world, as it is here in verses 26-31, through that even the, the, these people who don't have a healthy fear of God recognize that God's presence is with Isaac. And that's why they want to go, uh, they want to enter into this oath with him. So after sending Isaac away in verse 16 and recognizing that the Lord was blessing him, Abimelech tries to reestablish peace with Isaac. And why do you think he did that? Well, I think it's probably the same reason that the former Abimelech wanted to do it with Abraham, that he wanted to uh, enter into an oath with Abraham so that he would not be the object of God's wrath. If if there were ever any judgment that were going to come on the world, then, then he wants to be protected. And that maybe if I'm entered into oath with someone whom God is blessing, then I also receive the blessing. I think that's kind of the motivation here behind Abimelech, although this text doesn't tell us a whole lot about why he did it. Uh, so Isaac agrees to enter into this oath with these men, verses, or this, this group of people, verses 31 through 33. And in verses 32 and 33, he, um, he continues to enjoy the blessing. He he has his servants dig another hole, uh, another well, and they're able to find water there as well, and they call it Beersheba. Now, these last two verses, verses 34 and 35, um, speak about Esau, who we we met last week and we talked about last week and how unbelieving and, and how nearsighted he was with regard to spiritual things. 
And we see again how unbelieving he is, that he has no regard for God. Look at verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, what you should notice here immediately in verse 34 is that he marries two women, but he also marries two Hittite women. Both of them were God-haters. They were not God-fearers. They served their own gods. And that's why God told uh, Abraham, or that's why Abraham told his servant to find a wife for Isaac not in the land of Canaan. And uh, these foreign, ungodly, non-God-fearing women would not be helpful for cultivating godliness within their children. They would want to, instead of promoting service of God and worship of God to their children, instead they would encourage their kids to follow after other gods. And the reason that we know this is foolish, this is not just, well, he kind of picks two good ones here. Look at verse 35. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. The marrying of the Hittites by Esau will play into the next story when Isaac tries to choose his godless son Esau over Jacob. It shows really the the flaw in Isaac that he should have really chosen the one who had at heart the interests of God over the interests of the the false gods. But um, Isaac does come to his senses and, and he sees the problem here of the marriage of the Hittite woman. Here, he, it brings grief to him. Turn over to chapter 27, verse 46. The last verse of chapter 27. Notice that, that Isaac does finally come to his senses. Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth, that is the Hittites, the Hittite daughter-in-laws. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, the Hittites, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Rebecca's like, I can't live anymore if, if, if we have another Hittite in our family. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 28. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And then he goes on and talks about how he will be blessed in it. and May God bless him. So Isaac, we're going to see next week that Isaac is focusing more on the, the temporal things when he chooses Esau. He tries to choose Esau over Jacob. Um, but, but at the end, when, when uh, Rebekah says, listen, we can't have Jacob marry a, a Canaanite woman. And, and Isaac recognizes that and charges Jacob to, to get one from his uh, back up in Haran where, where Rebekah was found. So God, uh, God blesses those who live in obedient faith, faith and He helps them to triumph over worldly antagonism. This uh, first passage here in chapter 26 where we saw Isaac with this... Um, this sin of, of lying about his wife, calling her his sister, is, I think, uh, illustrative for us and helping us to see that we need to watch out ourselves for the enslaving power of sin. We need to watch out for the enslaving power of sin. 
It may seem minor to commit what we could call a little sin here or there. It may not seem that important. I mean, after all, our parents who are believers, they did it too, maybe our excuse. Or, you know, I saw someone else do it and they turned out okay spiritually. God seems to be blessing them, so it must not be too harmful. But I would encourage you to watch out for how quickly sin can enslave you. Um, getting motivated to commit sins is not like getting motivated to exercise. Uh, you, you don't have to work your way up, like just build up some energy and desire so that I want to sin. That's not how it works. It's actually the exact opposite that we want to sin by nature and we have to work our way up like we would for or, or build up a desire like we would to exercise. We have to build up a desire not to sin. And so if if we want to think about it as as we're floating, okay, if we're floating, we're going to float into sin. But if we're swimming, we're going to swim away from sin. It's it's like swimming against the current. That's what it's like to live the Christian life. You if you sit in the boat or you're just floating on an inner tube or something and you do nothing, the current is going to take you wherever you want it to go. It wants you to go. And and what happens there is that we become a slave, we could say, of the current. Wherever it wants to go, it will take us if we're just floating. And so we have to to work up a desire and a a um a resolve not to sin, not to be dragged away by the current of sin, not to be enslaved by it. Yesterday in our Bible reading, we read about Jesus talking to the Jews in the temple. And uh, He said there, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. That, that we are, in a sense, the, the sin can become our master. Listen, well, actually, let's turn to Romans chapter 6, and I'll just show you Romans chapter 6, verses 14 to 19. And Paul talks about sin being our master as well, but he, he talks in a different way about it. He's saying that's the way it was formerly. Don't let it be your master now if you're a Christian. Chapter 6, verses 14 through 19. For sin shall not or must not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do, not, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Sin is a very subtle master. 
it will happily embrace you. It will happily take you in. And before you know it, you will be enslaved to it. Where it will be your master and you will be following its every desire. And sin doesn't like for you to just dabble in it. It wants you to follow it wholeheartedly and so it asks for more every time. It doesn't satisfy. The, the thing that, you, that first drew you in doesn't satisfy anymore and so it requires a greater sin in order to, to maintain or to increase your satisfaction or to, to satiate it in any way. And so we have to watch out for the enslaving power of sin. Watch out for it because it can entrap us, but also because it, it can become a stumbling block for other people. You are being watched by other people whether you know it or not. And both believers and unbelievers are watching your life and when they see you entrapped by sin, it says something to them about your relationship to God. It says something to them about your desire to follow God or lack thereof. So don't be a stumbling block for other people. Don't, let, don't even let unbelievers use your bad behavior as an excuse to reject God. And that requires that we as individuals must live above reproach. That beyond that if we're ever called to the carpet and said, you did this, it won't be able to stick because our character is so strong that none of those charges would stick. The good news is that Christ's death has set us free from the bondage of sin. Romans 8.2 says, For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus, uh, and it has set you free from the law of sin and death. You know why, one of the reasons why Christ came? He came to set you free from being a slave to sin. That you would no longer have to follow impurity, immorality, unrighteousness. You could now follow a new master. You could become, as Paul says here in chapter 6, a slave, a servant of righteousness. So the first point of application from Genesis chapter 26, watch out for the enslaving power of sin. The second and final application is that we ought to praise God for His faithfulness. Praise God for His faithfulness. The recurring chord that should you should hear strike as if it's music being played as we read through the score of, of Genesis is that, that chord of God and His faithfulness to His people despite their sin. That God blesses His people when they obey and God blesses His people even like with, with Isaac, even often when they disobey. That He still provides for them. He's still there for them. He's still grabbing them and bringing them back. That he, he uses what we're going to see as chronic sinners. People like Abraham who we thought, you know, in, in times past we thought as, he's all buttoned up, he has no problems. And yet we see all of his sins, we see these very clearly, that he doesn't trust God, that he disobeys God, that he, he loves himself many times more than he loves God. And yet God still pursues him. God is still faithful to him. And we're going to see that in Jacob probably even more clearly with the many sins that he commits as well. And this should be a great comfort to us. That God doesn't just pursue us. On, on Wednesday night we saw Acts chapter 9 that God pursues sinners. He pursued the apostles Paul. It was Saul at that time. But, but He pursued 
Saul and he pursued each one of us. He's the one who builds within us that desire to search after God. So it's ultimately God who saves us. But, but the good news is not that just that God pursues us at salvation, but that He continually pursues us when we sin. He continually comes after us. He continually commits Himself to us. He says, I want to be their God and so that they can, uh, I want, I want to be their God and I want to see them be my people. So I'm going to continually pursue them. And as we talked about this morning, in order to present us, as the church, as the bride of Jesus Christ, spotless. God recognizes that we are weak and that we fall. And yet, time after time, He delivers us with His grace. Have you experienced that for yourself personally? Have you seen God continually pursue you despite your sin? So we ought to, as we see these sorts of things come up with with, uh, sins like Isaac here in Gerar, we ought to praise God for His faithfulness. And when we see God pursue us, when we fail Him, and when we deserve to be cast away and thrown out, God goes after us. And like a lost sheep, brings us back into the fold, makes sure that we're back into a place of protection. That's the type of God we serve. Let's pray. Father, we do praise You for Your continued continued faithfulness to us. We don't deserve Your love. As we sang this morning, uh, how can it be that, that, that You would shake and, and break the bonds that we once had? Our chains fell off and we've been set free. No longer are we a slave to Satan and, and sin because we have a greater Master, one who has overcome And we know that through Jesus Christ, we are overcomers as well if we've trusted in Him. We are overcomers and ultimately that will be clear when we make it to the next life. We will have overcome by uh, standing up against the, the wiles of the devil, standing firm as Paul says, and we put on the whole armor of God so that we are able to stand His fiery darts. He seeks to expose our weaknesses and capitalize on our weaknesses. And yet, You protect us. You are our fortress, our barrier. In times of trouble, we we go to the rock. We go to that cleft in the rock and hide there. And and even in times of blessing, You are there. and, and, And You are the One that deserves all the glory in our lives. And we're ashamed to say that at times we take the glory for ourselves. We, we try to take the credit. And so we ask for your forgiveness and ask for your continued pursuit of us. Don't stop pursuing us, God, we pray. We pray that you would uh, lead us all the way to the place that you have designed for us to go. That you would fulfill in us what you have started that at the day of Jesus Christ, that we would be presented before Him as spotless and blameless. We look forward to that day. We pray that that day would come quickly. But until that time, help us to be faithful, not discouraged, not distressed, not depressed or dispirited, but trusting in You, following You in obedience, and watching You do great things in our lives. 
What amazing things You do through chronic sinners like these men we've read about in the book of Genesis. But what, how much greater things You could do through those who obey. We want to learn from their example, both positive and negative. So help us to see these things and apply them to our lives and be better servants of You, our Master, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.